Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome to Facebook Live, Ignatius Press's interview program. I'm here with Archbishop Salvador Corleone. And welcome, Archbishop. I'm going to do a little introduction of you. I hope you don't mind. We're here to talk about your pastoral letter. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. A pastoral letter on human dignity, on the human dignity of the unborn, Holy Communion, and Catholics in public life. Now, you are the Archbishop of San Francisco. I'm telling you this is if you don't know this, but this is for the benefit of our audience. Previously, Bishop of Oakland, previously the Auxiliary Bishop of San Diego, previously to that, you were a pastor in San Diego, including in Imperial Valley. Um, full disclosure, you know, I used to work for the Archdiocese of San Francisco folks, and uh, Archbishop Corleone was a priest of that archdiocese, and my good friend Ed Peters, who's a canon lawyer, and I used to, Joe, he, I don't know if you know this. You're in the Diocese of San Diego, you mean? What did I say? Archdiocese of San Francisco. Oh, okay. San Diego. I'm sorry. In the Diocese of San Diego. Yes. yes. Used to work there. At, back back in my years as a priest there. He was yes. a priest there. And you were out in El Centro in Imperial Valley. And oh, my okay. friend Ed Peters, yeah. I don't know if we've ever told you this story, but no. we used to joke around about you being the Bishop of El Centro. <laughs> there's a cluster of parishes out there. And uh, anyway, I'd like to claim that we had prophetic knowledge that you were one day be the Archbishop of San Francisco, but that would be a lie. (laughs) Anyway, welcome to the program. Thank you. All right. Well, this uh, we're joking around a little bit, but um, this is certainly not a subject that we should be taking lightly. Um, You've written this pastoral letter on the topic of abortion. The dignity of the unborn, Holy Communion, and Catholics in public life. Um, why? Some people will ask, why another statement from the Catholic Church on the subject of abortion, and why now? Don't, don't we all know what the Church teaches on abortion? So why are you doing this? Not everyone knows what the Church teaches about abortion, precisely because it's been allowed to go on for so long by too many Catholics in public life. Uh, I was... I was interviewed on a a secular news station, a friendly reporter, but, um, and he asked me, so can a Catholic be uh, in favor of abortion? The very fact that he had to ask that question shows that, no, not everyone knows that the church is opposed to abortion, just as the church is opposed to every uh, attack on human dignity and innocent human life. It's not really a matter of church doctrine. It's a matter of the, the basic natural moral law. Uh, so uh, so there, there is a need for clearer and stronger teaching on this. And uh, so I wanted to take this approach where I began with uh, a common point of departure, which was science. People say that they're, they believe in science. We, we all like science. So what what... What is the biology involved in an abortion? So I had to expose what really happens because there's a lot of blindness to that and uh, pro-abortion advocates are uh, very good at deflecting attention away from the raw evil that it is. So I had to call attention to that and then speak about principles of law and the church's take on that. So I I knew I had to begin at that point before getting into questions of uh, 
well, Catholics' responsibility in that regard and in terms of receiving communion? Well, it's certainly pertinent to the question of why are we talking about this and why is this why is the church talking about it? The church is talking about it not because it's particularly or peculiarly, we should say, uh, religious or Catholic, but because it's a grave moral evil. And there are all kinds of grave moral evils that the church addresses. I notice that you begin uh, your pastoral letter with a quote from Jeremiah, the prophet, you know, the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, from what for, for Christians is the Old Testament, for Jews is, is part of the Hebrew Bible. And you also have a quote from Pope Francis about the throwaway culture. And, and of course, Jeremiah is talking about how each of us is intended by God. We're not accidents in, in that sense. Each of us is intended by God. And then Pope Francis talks about the victims of throwaway culture. And you list some of them. And, and that kind of touches on this, this range of issues that comes up when people say, why is the church talking about abortion? Well, it's not just that the church talks about abortion. The church talks about other things. Can you talk a little bit about the throwaway culture and, and what Pope Francis talks about in that regard? Yes, well, we certainly see the throwaway culture attitude on, on all kinds of issues. Um, and the, the church advocates for justice uh, across the board, and that doesn't fall into any neat political categories. The church is one of the most vocal advocates for immigrants and for just immigration policy and for, uh, and for uh, protecting and assisting those who come here without proper documentation. There are brothers and sisters too, and this is a huge complicated problem, but a lot of people are suffering because of it. So they are conveniently in, invisible to a lot of people and can be disregarded. That's another example of throwaway culture. We can think of throwaway culture at the other end of life, people at, and on their deathbed that uh, now there's strong movement to uh, help them to die quickly to intervene to cause their death rather than surround them with love and compassion and support uh, because the suffering is not just physical, it's emotional and it's spiritual. So we see the same thing with the abortion issue where this is another, there's an inconvenience, so we throw, throw it away, throw away culture, rather than surrounding the woman with love and support and uh, help her to make uh, a happy life-giving decision. So there's the throwaway culture also, just in terms of, of marriage and, and family and how lightly these very serious responsibilities are taken. And the, the, the family breakdown is just, is trapping far too many people in, in poverty, in crime and violence, incarceration. So uh, the throwaway culture manifests itself in many different ways. You've mentioned a lot of issues and we're, not, we're gonna come back to the subject of abortion as what the US bishops call the preeminent political issues. But all these issues you talked about in connection to the throwaway culture um, are part of the concern of the church under the rubric of this idea of a consistent ethic of life. And I think that, and you mentioned that in your pastoral letter, uh, it would be great if you could explain a little bit about that, because I know a lot of times when uh, pro-life leaders, bishops, or even just lay people talk about the subject of, a of abortion, some other people will present a consistent ethic of life as if it's somehow at odds with talking about abortion. Yes, uh, consistent ethic of life means affirming human dignity at every stage of life and in every condition of life. And all of these issues have their own set of considerations, whether it's abortion, euthanasia, immigration, uh, capital punishment. Uh, so they can't be all 
treated in this in exactly the same way, but they all have something in common as to what really affirms human dignity in these different situations. Because this is a, a situation where human life, human life itself, is at stake. Right. So they're all important. Anything that touches on human dignity is important. We can't treat them as if they're unimportant or marginal and so on. But that doesn't mean that all issues are equally important in any given circumstance. You know, I, when I used to teach social ethics, I used to talk about, you know, some, you know, a poor, vulnerable, elderly person living in a high crime neighborhood. Yeah, that person has a human dignity and a right to life. And, you know, you take a wealthy person living in a gated community with private security and so on. That person has a human dignity, right to life, but the, their, the, their, their right to life is not equally subject to vulnerable attack at that moment. And so it makes sense that you're going to take some resources and devote that, those resources to protect the person that's most vulnerable, even though both you know, types of people are human beings and they have human dignity and so on. So it makes sense that we have lots of different issues. We should be concerned about all of them, but that doesn't mean we can't focus on one. And, and I think it's often we often lose sight of the fact that we have, you know, a, almost a million people who are killed every year through legal abortion in the con in this country. So, um, you know, obviously that's part of a consistent ethic of life, but it doesn't mean we we don't prioritize prioritize things. Yes, the U.S. bishops have called abortion the preeminent issue of our time. That doesn't mean that other issues are not important and don't demand our attention. We give we give more attention to other issues, in fact, than we do and resources than we do to abortion. But we've been consistently teaching about it. And we need to be more forceful in teaching about it because, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, that too many people don't know that abortion is evil, let alone that the church uh, opposes it. So it, it's, it's preeminent for a number of reasons, uh, just simply the number of lives that are lost. As you said, about a million a year. Since since the Roe decision alone in the United only the United States, sixty six million babies murdered in their mother's wombs. That's not counting abortions that were going on before nineteen seventy three in the United States. That's not counting other countries of the world. Just in the last fifty years in the United States, sixty six million babies murdered in their mother's wombs. Can we begin to fathom the depth of this evil? Uh, yes, there are other evils as well, but uh, the sheer numbers. Uh, plus, it uh, takes place, as the bishops say, within the sanctuary of the family. It's, it's the most, the most intimate. This is, this is a sacred place, the life in the mother's womb. And it's not as if this is happening uh, contrary to our laws. We have murders you know, in the country that occur. You know, of, of, of people have already been born, uh, but that's against the law. And in the case of abortion, it's actually you know, the legal structure of the country – as saying, well, this is a right. It's actually a human right for the mother to choose to kill her unborn child. And if you try to interfere with that, the police power of the state is going to come in and prevent you. Yes, although I will take some exception to the way you phrased it, not okay. that you take it to, that a mother chooses right. to kill the baby. All too often, she doesn't have a choice, and that's right. the problem. That's Only uh, women in families of means have a real choice. Right. The problem is they don't have choice. If women had real choice, their, their abortion rate would go way, way down. Now, uh, I, I know this from people who uh, assist women in these crisis situations. So, you know, from San Diego, 
right. the culture of life family services is one. We're trying to start another pro-life or crisis pregnancy clinic. Well, it's more of a all around women's health care, the Bella Clinic. Uh, so I'm so proud of my fellow Catholics who who operate these uh, clinics for women. And I, I like to tell them that they're the ones who are really pro-choice because they will help the woman exercise every choice except one. So there's adoption and there's different kinds of adoptions. There's open adoption, you know, and other ways of putting it. They'll walk her through the adoption. Um, help her get, if she needs job training, how to fill out a resume. They help her not just with the medical needs, with the emotional and spiritual needs. They have a, I know Cultural Life Family Services has a therapist uh, on hand. She needs therapy. Uh, they tried if she came from a faith tradition try to connect her back to her church or her faith tradition to get the spiritual support that they need. They do have a, a spiritual counselor there as well. And as, so it's wraparound care, and it's not just up till the time the baby's born. It's after the baby's born, too. They provide her with whatever she needs, though, blankets, diapers, baby formula, whatever. So this is how we show that we are really pro-life. Amen. That we, we care for the woman, the mother, and the baby help her put her life back together so she can make a happy choice and not have to bear this very deep scar of having the baby within her put to death because she really, really, at the end of the day, had no choice in the matter. That's very well put. And, of course, so oftentimes we hear the charge that pro-lifers are only concerned about the life of the, of the child or they're only concerned about you know not having abortion. They're not concerned about the mother. They're not concerned about what happens after the child is born. And those of us who've been involved with the pro-life movement for many years know that that's that is just false. That is just not yeah, it's true. It's not only false. It's the reverse. That's true. So how come how come they want to keep her ignorant? You know the these pro-life crisis pregnancy clinics. Uh, most of them have a, a sonogram, often 3D sonograms. And I know cultural life family services tell me that. All it, uh, well, some women go in there thinking they're going to have an abortion, and then they, they give her information about what's going on inside of her, and they show her the 3D sonogram. 95% of them change their mind. But how can a woman change her mind and give birth if she's not given the support she needs to make that choice? That's right. So, uh, so where are those who say that they're for the woman? Why don't they want her to have information about what an abortion really involves? Or why is the abortion industry one of the least regulated of any kind of a medical service? Uh, where are they afterwards when the woman's grieving the abortion? In fact, they don't even, too many women are not even allowed to talk about it. They're shut down. Another thing I'm very proud of our fellow Catholics is we provide resources to help women and others affected by the abortion incident to, to heal afterwards, the Rachel Ministries retreats and so forth. So this is another way that shows we're really pro-woman and pro-life. So where are those who are claiming that they're pro-women? Why don't they let her grieve and help her to heal? Why are we the ones who they claim are against women? All right, very good questions. Um, there's a lot we could talk about in your pastoral letter. I'd like to move into the area of of cooperation and evil because you uh you're I, I it may be that there are other pastoral letters on the subject of abortion that go into this but i don't if there are i don't recall it uh yours is one of the few if perhaps 
even the only one that really goes into this discussion of cooperation and moral evil with respect to well cooperation and moral evil period but with respect to abortion why did you talk about well first of all please explain that for us and why did you think it important enough to put it in this pastoral letter I knew it had to go in because I was going to treat the responsibility of Catholics in public life. So to, there's this question about whether or not they should be receiving communion. Mm -hmm. Well, the Catholic in public life who's advocating for something that's seriously evil, such as the killing of innocent human life, is uh, are they in a objective state of mortal sin and therefore should not be receiving communion? Well, that gets into the question of cooperation, because they're not necessarily participating in a specific abortion, right? So clearly, the one who <coughs> carries out the abortion, um, and uh, maybe in those few cases where a woman really has the means to make a life-giving decision and knows it's wrong and does it anyway, um, I, I don't think there are too many women in that situation, actually, but uh, just some speculation on my part. But clearly, those who participate in the abortion directly, yes. But what about those who support it, but they're not involved in any specific abortion? So this gets into the question of, of cooperation. So I knew I had to treat that question before I got into the roles and responsibilities of Catholics in public life and the question of reception of communion. So I go into the distinctions. I try to make it as succinct and clear as possible because there are technical distinctions of Catholic moral theology, but it's very important for Catholics to understand these distinctions. We're facing that now with the vac COVID vaccines, right? About the question of, of cooperation. So the formal and uh, material, the material if it's, if it's uh, immediate or immediate, if it's immediate, whether it's remote or proximate, and weighing, where does it fall on that spectrum? if it's material cooperation, and then the gravity of the evil that's being cooperated with, the, the good that to come from the cooperation, these are all factors that have to be taken into consideration. And they affect you know, the blameworthiness of the person who's associated with the evil act, but, but they don't make the evil act itself a good act. So if I'm, even if I'm not blameworthy, say I don't fully understand what I'm doing or I'm not fully free in doing it, that doesn't mean the thing that I'm doing is somehow transformed into a good thing. Right. And yeah. I think that sometimes the action itself is right. Well, yes. Yeah. And so people sometimes, well, that will come in in the question of abortion and, and related things. And of course you mentioned the, the, the topic of communion and you do deal with the, some people have characterized your pastoral letter as focused on that. And that's, that's not accurate. You do t touch on that topic. But um, I'd like you to have the opportunity to talk about this because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that people have that somehow you have set out to um, weaponize the Eucharist or politicize the Eucharist when, in fact, it's pretty clear if people take the time to read your letter with patience and fairness that you see this as a last resort. Yes. Yes, that would be a last resort. To say that this is weaponizing the Eucharist for political purpose, um, well, first of all, that's to claim to read the minds of myself and others who are taking this position, to read our minds and know what our motivations are. Uh, in reality, 
a non-political argument can be made either way when it comes to the question of whether to admit Catholics in public life to communion or not. To do not not to admit them or to admit them, uh, allow them to. Uh, non-political arguments can be made for both. So, by the same token, if we're some are presuming that we're politically motivated. One can say those who are in favor of allowing them to receive communion are also politically motivated for making that decision. So uh, politics, uh, we can't like completely get rid of it, uh, push it aside because it is connected, but it's not a political matter, it, a decision. This, it's pastoral, it's always, we're looking for the salvation of souls. We're looking to repair scandal. So this is a pastorally motivated uh, decision. And it's not like this is the first time this has ever happened. So <laughs> right. I give the examples right in a sidebar in the uh, pastoral letter of the civil rights era and uh, Catholic archbishops who were um, taking similar action. There's the famous, most famous, not the only, but the most famous was Archbishop Brummel in New Orleans, who actually excommunicated three Catholics in political life because they were opposed to his plan to integrate the schools. Now, uh, like this comparison with racism. So it's really kind of an apples and oranges comparison. Racism is evil. There's no question that racism is evil and we have to work to eradicate it. But racism is an attitude that manifests itself in different ways in different concrete actions. Abortion is a concrete action. Uh, uttering a racial slur is a concrete action. Lynching is a concrete action. But those are pretty pretty far apart in terms of how serious the evil is. Right. Lynching is killing innocent human life, uh, one that's racially motivated. Abortion is killing innocent human life. So abortion is comparable to lynching as the most extreme manifestation of racism. Archbishop Rummel excommunicated these uh, Catholics in political life, not because they were favorable to lynching. Uh, I don't know if they were, I would doubt it, but for something that's also serious, but not quite as serious killing instant human life because they wanted to keep the school segregated, which meant inferior education for people of the African-American race. So no one accuses him of having weaponized the Eucharist right. in, in doing so. In fact, he's he's praised for taking a strong stand um, to further justice in, in his archdiocese. And presumably you bishops who, who are as a last resort saying uh, that, you know, we should not be giving communion to people who who uh, obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin of supporting abortion rights, supporting legal abortion. Presumably, if, if someone were calling for. Uh, legal lynching of of racial different racial groups or other forms of legal uh, discrimination against people on the basis of race or something of that sort, you would engage in the same sort of uh, practice of dialoguing with the politician, trying to convert the person's mind and heart, and then if that if that person persisted in this persevered and manifest grave sin in a public way then that same last resort measure you talked about with respect to uh, promoting abortion rights would come into play. It's uh, no, thank God, purely hypothetical now, um, but it's a good example of, I mean, will we say that a Catholic archbishop 
in New Orleans, if he, um, if he, there were, let's say today, Catholic politicians who were advocating legalizing lynching, would they say he's weaponizing the Eucharist if he tried to convince them otherwise and they refuse and then declares her not to be admitted to communion? I mean, because the evil is so blatantly obvious. And, you know, we shudder in horror now to think that lynchings could have been condoned. But what happens is there's this cultural blindness to the evil and, and the injustice that's being perpetrated. So much so that those who try to uh, advocate against it and try to eradicate it are punished and ostracized because of the cultural blindness. Uh, that's what happened in pre-civil rights South in a lot of communities. Uh, thank God that's gone now and our eyes are opened to the evil. But now we have that kind of cultural blindness with, with abortion. People, uh, too many people don't see the evil for what it is. And uh, often those who are advocating for life and the human dignity of the unborn are, again, they're punished and, and ostracized because of the cultural blindness. You, when you issued your pastoral letter, there was a fair amount of controversy. There was a company comp controversy about the upcoming bishops' conference meeting next week. Uh, there was some effort on the part of some bishops to get the Archbishop, Archbishop Gomez, who's the president of the conference, to change the agenda, drop from the agenda the discussion of a document on the Eucharist. Now, my understanding of this document, and as it was proposed, is not focusing on the question of communion for people in public life. That was one piece of the conversation, but the overall conversation uh, was about the document, was a document on the Eucharist. Um, you were pretty outspoken on that. Do you have any comments or thoughts about uh, the situation with respect to that topic at the upcoming bishops meeting? The, the term we're using uh, with regard to this document is Eucharistic coherence, yes. uh, which we are borrowing from the Apartheid document that the Latin American Bishops Conference issued at their, their great meeting in Apartheid several years ago. The One of the key authors of which was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires at the time, Jorge Bergoglio. And they speak explicitly about um, Catholic politicians who uh, attack human dignity, and, and such as abortion and euthanasia that they mention, that uh, they cannot do so and be, uh, uh, there has to be a coherence between their public life and their Catholic faith and reception of communion. They're, they're not in a, properly disposed to receive communion if they're advocating these attacks on human life. So they use the term Eucharistic coherence. And so we're uh, adopting that for our own document, which is looking to, um, a, it's, it's not gonna focus exclusively on abortion. Uh, my pastoral letter was more focused on that but it will be more comprehensive because there are other direct attacks on human life. Uh, so it's kind of the principle, that principle, and that uh, then it will be inclusive of all Catholics have responsibility to live coherently with the action of receiving communion. And of course, Catholics in public life have an added responsibility because of the public witness that they give. Now, one of the issues that arose was whether or not this this conversation because of the letter that Cardinal Ladaria from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith sent, the Archbishop Gomez, 
whether or not there should be this conversation at all. Uh, doesn't there need to be more time and so on? And uh, I know that your view, at least the, in terms of what was published, your view was that, no, we should go ahead and have the conversation. Is there any reason you think that the conversation shouldn't begin among the bishops at the June meeting, just because the June meeting isn't an in-person meeting? No, I don't. I don't. I think some bishops have, um, um, have a concern that it's a sensitive topic and we need to discuss it in person. But uh, the administrative committee, that's the administrative committee has the authority to set the agenda for the meeting, right? And at the administrative committee, it was voted overwhelmingly to put on the agenda, knowing that it was going to be a virtual meeting because we're only voting to approve the writing of this document. Then the doctrine committee will do its work in writing the document. So there will be a document of the full body of bishops. The procedure is when that's the first, there has to be a vote to approve that will issue this document. Then whatever the topic it is, the, the pertinent committee will write the document, write a draft. It's circulated to the bishops before the meeting for what we call the modification process. So bishops have time to read through it and suggest changes in advance of the meeting. The committee will receive those, they'll review them, accept or reject. And then uh, they go into the meeting with the revised document that is then presented. Then the bishops have the opportunity to make amendments at the meeting itself. Right. And they have to be at the end of the day, and then the committee will meet that evening and go through the amendments and accept or reject. Then it comes when the document comes up for a vote, there's an opportunity for reconsideration of amendments that have been accept, accepted, amendments that have been rejected. This also, I should say, back up, before the uh, document is made available to the bishops before the meeting, it's also reviewed by other committees that would have um, relevance to it. Uh, so uh, typically, if it's not written by the uh, doctrine committee, but some other committee, doctrine will review it because always doctrinal considerations. Canonical affairs will review it because very often there are canonical considerations. I know canonical affairs will review this document on Eucharistic coherence, because clearly there are canonical factors to be weighed in and whatever other pertinent committees there might be. So there's a committee uh, process too, in addition to the committee writing the document, then the modification process, then the presentation at the meeting, amendment process, then there can be reconsideration for amendments accepted and rejected, and then the document is voted on. So all of that will happen in November when we are in person. and. I would agree it, it's it it'd be hard to do it's not impossible to do virtually mm. but it, it's it's harder and uh, something like this is very sensitive so it's it is better that we're doing that in person but as far as this june meeting coming up next week it's a matter of just approving whether or not to issue this document and, and presumably uh, the the bishops yeah. who the bishops who supposedly, we don't know because some of the bishops are saying, well, I never saw the letter, but my name is attached to it. But presumably the bishops who uh, are associated with this letter that was sent to Archbishop Gomez asking him to take the topic off the agenda, if they want to voice concerns about not proceeding with the document and they want to express the need for more time and more conversation outside of a virtual meeting, 
they're free to do that, are, are they not? Uh, that's the point. Yeah, that's 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 why we have procedures. The purpose of these procedures is so that uh, it can be fair and objective, and everyone can have a voice because it's a document of the whole body of bishops. So here we have a, a minority group of bishops asking the president of the conference to remove something from the agenda that only the administrative committee has the authority to do. Uh, so how is that being fair to the full body of bishops? We will discuss and debate it at the meeting. And those who uh, are opposed to going forward with this at this time will have an opportunity to make their case. And those who are in favor of it will have an opportunity to make their case and we'll debate it and we'll vote in a fair and objective way. Archbishop, obviously this is an important topic. You wrote a pastoral letter on it and you're trying to encourage people to read the pastoral letter. I know they can go to the Archdiocese of San Francisco website and download a copy of it and read it. And there's, there's accompanying Q&A and some other material associated with it. In fact, I think you have, you have video resources available for people uh, to read the document and learn from it. Uh, it's also going to be the topic of abortion is going to continue to be a topic of concern for the U.S. bishops. Uh, we're all praying for you, gentlemen, uh, as you meet next week in an ongoing uh, effort to lead the church in this important area. Thank you for taking the time to be with us, and thank you for your pastoral ministry. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.